and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today Elizabeth Bonneman, Media Evil's resident Doctor Who expert, is back to talk about season 14 serial, The Mask of Mandragora. Hi, Elizabeth. Hey, it's great to be back. That is my that yeah. is my biggest claim to fame. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you want to remind the listeners who you are and what your relationship with Doctor Who is? I am a student of medieval history, and I have am also a fairly avid watcher of Doctor Who. I know more about it than pretty much anyone I know. So I've sort of over time become media evil's Doctor Who expert. And I've, I've appeared a couple yeah. times before doing the episodes for The Time Meddler and The Time Warrior. And this is the first mm-hmm. one we've done without the word time in the title. Right. But they do still go back in time. So. Well, yes. That's kind of the premise of the show. Right. <laughs> and we are still actually like dealing with like changing history in some ways. That also seems oh, to be yeah. a theme that's, of the show. That's very much a theme. There hasn't really been... With, with one exception in 1982, there has not been, like, an, a purely historical, they just go back in time and meet historical figures. Aside from mm-hmm. one example in 1982, the last time they did that was 1967. So it was, it's really, uh-huh. it's really something that, like, it's, it's a format that was largely a, pretty much abandoned after the first four seasons, so... So yeah, here we are on season 14. True to form, I have still not watched any Doctor Who other than the three serials that we will by the end of today have covered, which means that I have now seen three entirely different Doctors and have never seen the same Doctor twice. Yep. We have Tom Baker as the fourth Doctor in this serial. How How is he generally regarded? Uh, as far as the classic Doctors go, he is the iconic one. Like, if if you okay. see if you see like an homage to Doctor Who in another medium, mm-hmm. generally speaking, especially if it's from before the before the reboot series started, they'll be portrayed with like the iconic, insanely long scarf and uh, complimenting fedora. I am glad to hear the scarf is iconic since the scarf was oh, yes. uh, very striking and also is relevant to the plot at some point. Oh so. yeah. The scarf is kind of like, each doctor like kind of has like a really defining, the, the most memorable part of their of their costume. And for four, it's the scarf. For three, it's like mm-hmm. the frills. For one, it's like the standard Edwardian suit. Mm-hmm. And then like later on uh, for Five, it's he, he he dresses as a cricketer with a stick of celery stuck to his lapel. Hmm. Yeah. The stick of celery is stuck to his lapel for multiple seasons, then. I think he changes it and out. over... I think... Uh, he, oh, okay. I, I think he it, switches I think between it's, different pieces of celery so they don't rot. Right, but... <laughs> but he's always got a celery there. Six has uh, what the fans have affectionately dubbed the Technicolor Nightmare Coat. <laughs> it is... It is hideous. If you look up a picture I look of, forward to seeing that. If you look up a picture of the sixth doctor, it is it is horrible. And I love it. I'm actually really curious just based on the name, and so I'm actually Googling this right now. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh, that's certainly something. Uh-huh. Yes it is. Hmm. Okay. 
He does not have that coat, but he does have a multicolored <laughs> scarf. Yep. And he also has like very distinctive facial expressions. Like he has oh, all yes. these like kind of like weirdly like manic grins oh, that yes. he gets on occasion. Tom Baker is is famous for playing the clownish alien. He does mm-hmm. he does alien very well. Yeah. He almost the way he acts, it almost you have moments where it seems like, oh, is this actually your body <laughs> that you're used to? <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I wonder if he is human. (laughs) (laughs) He might not be. Maybe he is, in fact, a Time Lord. It's possible. We also do, once again, have Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith. So she, I guess, actually bridged the move between the third and fourth Doctors then. Yes. She holds a record for most serials in the TARDIS. Mm Mm-hmm. When determining of who, companions, or does of, that of, include doctors of, as well? No, of companions. The long, the okay. like in terms of any actor, like the, then the record is definitely Tom Baker, who was uh, okay. the doctor from season twelve through season nineteen. If I'm doing okay. my math right, I might be. I might. I might have miscounted somewhere, but I think I'm right. And she, I guess, got introduced in season eleven. Since right. that's when we've done that one. <laughs> yeah, so we did that one. So Tom Baker has been was the doctor from 1974 all the way to 1981. Wow, okay. He's there yeah. for a while. Yeah. There are a huge number of people in this episode who I looked up briefly and confirmed that I have not heard of them or seen them at anything. But, you know, you're assorted British TV actors. Yeah. The, the, you know, you're standard. I it's an it's enough of a career to put food on the t- mm-hmm. plate, but they're but they're not famous household names yeah. yeah and the one person i will mention is tim pygott smith who plays marco which is a relatively small piece but he does have a number of small roles in some film in some recent ish films including *B for vendetta gangs of new york quantum solace and jupiter ascending playing assorted characters that i have not seen those movies relatively recently enough to remember who they are but be that as it may. The role of Tim Piggott Smith that always comes to my mind is uh, there was a film called King Charles III, which is like sort of done in the style of a Shakespearean history play with like the meter and everything, but it's like events in the near future after presumably inevitable passing of Queen Elizabeth II, although she may be immortal. Um, I think it's more likely that she'll never die than that Charles will ever become king. Fair. But uh, but the but the movie covers like the theoretical what would happen like if slash when Charles becomes king and Tim Piggott Smith plays Charles. Okay, hmm, interesting. I can I can kind of see that. Yeah. So I'll give just a very brief recap of the premise, and then we can get into a broader discussion in our enumeratio section. The Doctor and Sarah Jane are taken through the machinations of the Mandragora Helix to 15th century Italy, where they must keep Mandragora from taking over Earth and ruining science. I have a lot of thoughts about science and the Renaissance. Oh, yes. That will come up (laughs) at various points throughout this episode. Yep. I've I've read the notes. I have so many thoughts. So we start out in the TARDIS, and uh, Sarah is getting a tour of the interior, which... Part of the interior. Okay. The TARDIS is huge. Yeah. So, I mean, given that she's been on and off, like, sort of living in it for several years at this point, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it clearly must be huge if she's, like, still seeing new parts of it at the moment. Oh, yeah. They, they, they look into, uh, the boot cupboard, which is 
A room that is roughly the size of the ballroom at Versailles, but it contains one pair of boots and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Really not making good use of the boot cover, to be honest. No. (laughs) They also, in the course of this tour, come across the old control room and start poking around in there and end up approaching and then entering the Mandragora Helix, which is described as a spiral of pure energy within a, with a controlling intelligence at its center. Or as it's described later, a fire demon from space. Yeah, it's... I think either is legit. Yeah, it's fair enough. It, it works. <laughs> I mean, I, I, find equ- I find the two equally comprehensible as explanations. Sure, yeah. We hear a voice laughing demonically, per the closed captions. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> which we will learn eventually is, in fact, I guess, the helix itself or the said controlling intelligence at its center. Yeah, something along those lines. So they're outside for a bit, they sort of get attacked, and then they go back inside, at which point they are taken to 15th century Italy. And specifically the fictional Duchy of San Martino. Yes. Which I don't necessarily see as being any particular place. I don't think it's supposed to be. I think that's, I think part of the, part of why they made up a fictional one is so that they didn't have to reference specifics. Yes. We know it's not equivalent to Venice or Milan because those places are mentioned. Yep. But, and, you know, obviously it's not Rome because Rome's got its own whole thing. Oh, yeah. But it's, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know, Florence-ish, but it seems smaller. I don't know. Yeah, it's filmed in, oh, I wrote it, I wrote it down somewhere. It's filmed in Port Marion, which is a, which is a small town in Wales that is built to look Hmm. like, it's, it's, the whole architecture of the town is meant to, like, evoke Renaissance Italy. But it's okay. but it's a but it's a ni- it's a town that was built in the 19th century in Wales, and uh, this That's is adorable. Ac- this has actually gotten it its own little economic niche as the BBC's go-to place for like generic Italian village <laughs> filming <laughs> location. I will say it doesn't look bad. Oh yeah, no. This I is... mean, I assumed it was like a set or something, and I was like, "All right, yeah, so they did a decent job." I feel like it's also where they filmed the the nineteen sixties Romeo and Juliet movie. Oh, interesting. I do know. I do know for a fact that uh, some of the costumes used in this episode are recycled from that production. Okay. So that's a mm. fun fact. Huh. Cool. Yeah the the costumes are yeah they're very you know they're very the kind of things that you would see in a fifteenth century Italian Renaissance painting. Yeah. Which, yeah, again, decent job. Decent job on the costumes, I will say. Fair doom. Since the Middle Ages is very violent, the first thing that we see once we arrive in 15th century Italy is a man who we'll learn is Count Federico, violently suppressing a peasant revolt, which includes, like, he kills a bunch of people, and then he's like, leave that one alive so they will know the consequences of insurrection. Yep. So he's not a very nice guy. He's not a nice man. He also kind of looks like Lorenzo de' Medici. A little bit. I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, like, why I kind of had Florence vaguely in my head, even though he doesn't act anything like Lorenzo de' Medici. Fair. He asks, he acts more like Cesare de Borgia, if anything. <laughs> right. And if anything, I would say Giuliano, his nephew, is more of a Lorenzo type. Yes. 
in terms of his kind of patronage goals. But he has he has Lorenzo's like weird haircut. Yeah. <laughs> Federico is violently suppressing this peasant revolt. Meanwhile, Federico's brother dies, which we learn is precisely in accordance with the predictions made by the court astrologer Hieronymus. Federico's nephew Giuliano, the son of the dead person who I don't think we know the name of, finds this extremely suspicious, which is very fair. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I have, I have, uh, I have in my notes. Giuliano's father has come down with a with a uh, sudden case of dead. Right, and he's like, "How did you predict the exact hour of his death?" And he was like, "I don't know. Venus said so, or whatever." I didn't write down all the astrology stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it sounded like astrology stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did not look up or really do anything with the astrology stuff. You know, it no. sounded it right. Sounded, I don't know, whatever. It sounded like a. It sounded like a thing, like a yeah, like a thing that would happen. Sure. Yeah, but it, it becomes increasingly pretty clear that basically he like predicts the deaths of people that are going to get murdered, and that's yeah. how he can be so accurate with his predictions. <laughs> Yeah, it's like Federico tells him, okay, this guy's going to die this uh, at this point in time on this day. I'm having him murdered. It's like, it's like, oh, this guy will die on this day at this time in this way. Right, and it's like, oh, oh, wow, and then it happened. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yep. Giuliano is very suspicious of astrology, given that he did, however, just technically get some, like, what could be considered pretty solid proof that it works, but uh, his his suspicions are valid. Yeah. The doctor confirms that we are in the fifth, late 15th century in the Mediterranean, which he describes as not a very pleasant time. Which in this specific, in this specific reference, I think, I think might be fair. Cause I think this might be around the, I'm not sure the exact dates of the Italian wars. But I wouldn't want to be caught in the middle of them. <laughs> I mean, we're also not sure of the exact dates of this serial. True. That's why it's a. That's why it's a maybe for me. Right. Like, yeah. It may be valid. Yeah. And I don't know. Kind of depends, like exactly where you are when. Like I don't know if True. you're in Florence and Savonarola is running around. That's not so fun. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, all right. I'll I'll take that. It's I don't know. Maybe not the most pleasant. The plague still every now and then pops up again. Oh you yeah. Big bag. Sarah goes running off because she sees some oranges that look awesome and is then captured by mysterious hooded figures. The doctor fights them and is initially successful and then they hit him over the head with a rock. Yep. It's a running trend. One of the the few character traits that pretty much every companion has in common is a pathological inability to listen when the doctor tells them not to wander off. Right. Because they will all do that all the time. <laughs> right. Just none of them will ever. I Back in the very first episode or serial that we watched, the companion there, Vicky, <laughs> she basically, she didn't want to wander off and then she still got bullied into wandering off by the other <laughs> <Yep>. companion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So she's gone, and then as he comes to, he sees this, like, thing that kind of looks like a shuttlecock that's made of light. Sure. It's... Like, it's, it causes some explosions. It's a it's a, it's a floaty, glowy thing. It's red, so you know yeah. it's evil. Yeah, it's a floaty, glowing thing, and it causes some explosions, and it kills a peasant, because peasants are very disposable. Yep. Why not? <laughs> and the doctor does realize at this point that it is mandragora energy that must have stowed away in the TARDIS. That makes sense. Sure. We'll go with it. Yeah, sure. This, this this thing did fly at him and Sarah Jane earlier, and they, like, tried to duck yeah. around behind the TARDIS to, to avoid it, but instead it just went in because they left the door open. That's why you never leave the door open. Yeah, it's a, not a 
Not the best move. Get Mandragora energy. You get, I don't know, raccoons. Like, <laughs> don't leave the door open. Yep. You get like an extra cat. I don't know. I think I think the doctor wouldn't mind a cat maybe, but. Yeah, I think he'd like a cat. Carmen. Carmen, you want to go on the TARDIS? Good job, Carmen. <laughs> Unifor meow when it's helpful and would like get a response to a question. Hieronymus then foretells Giuliano's death, which like is really, I feel like adding to the suspiciousness. Yeah, no, that's like, okay, so Federico tells tells Hieronymus, it's like, okay, you're going to predict Giuliano's death. And, and Hieronymus is like, uh, I think he's already a little suspicious, my dude. <laughs> right. Like, this is not a good idea as this a plan. Is, like, if you're going to secretly plan. kill him, just secretly kill him. If I, if you say you are going to die in 10 days time, according to the heavens, then he's just going to be like really on alert for the next 10 days to make sure that nobody murders him. Right. So I don't understand what the point of that is, but be that as it may. The doctor then gets captured by some guards and Sarah Jane is going to be sacrificed to a god named Demnos, who seems like a real cool fun dude. Yeah. The doctor gets brought before Federico and tries to explain the dangers of the Mandragora Helix, which he initially does by like saying a bunch of things that I find utterly incomprehensible as a 21st century non-scientist. Yeah, no, I... The doctor has... It's a fairly consistent flaw that the doctor has trouble, like, explaining things in terms that people will understand. Right. Yeah. And at some point later, he's, like, blaming medieval vocabulary. And I'm like, I don't even think medieval vocabulary is the problem. Like, I don't think in the 21st century we have vocabulary that an ordinary person would understand. Certainly not. Would describe this. No. I, I, I don't know. Honestly, at some point, he's basically like, it's a fire demon from the stars. And I'm like, yeah, actually, that that's close enough. Yeah, that... That's a good enough explanation. It'll, yeah. Like, that's that's more likely to satisfy anyone in this area, except for Giuliano, who's inexplicably an atheist. Right, of course, because we always have to have our one sympathetic medieval person who's actually an atheist. Right. Federico decides, based on nothing, to execute the doctor, because why the fuck not? And we end the first episode with Sarah Jane about to be sacrificed and the doctor about to be executed. I have to just comment on the fact that the executioner is wearing a, like, sleeveless leather outfit, which, like, looks like he's, like, going to, like, a very particular kind of club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it's basically Tobias's leather daddy outfit from that uh, bit of, from that Arrested Development bit. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know the one. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> right? Like, it's a weird choice as a look. It's it's a little strange. I mean, like I get the I get like the hooded executioner trope, but but the rest of the costume is. I just I just want him to have sleeves. That's really all I want. Yeah. I feel like it would seem a hundred times more normal if he just had sleeves. <laughs> I can also see like you wouldn't want sleeves to get messy, but that's that's spe- pure speculation on my part. <laughs> it's like, oh no, I got blood on this sleeve. I I liked this jacket. Now I have to throw it out. <laughs> Can't get those stains out. Now I'm like, well, if you just had, like, black leather, how easy is it to just wipe the blood off? That's also true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that I've gotten blood on black leather before, so I don't have a lot of personal explanations. So if anybody has, please weigh in. (laughs) And in the beginning of the next episode, the doctor manages to escape with his iconic scarf. Yeah, he uses it to, like trip up the guards and knock down the executioner and steal a bunch of horses. He runs off. He manages to hide in the marketplace. 
the guards have hilariously intensely English accents. Yes. And it's very much like wait, I'm I'm sorry, we're in Italy. <laughs> I mean sure. But to be fair, I think I I think I would rather have like these English actors who are like speaking like what is understood to be like translated into English. Like yeah. they they even explain that later, sort of. I'd rather have them speaking with like their, their normal accents than like being like Hey, where did the where did the doctor go? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I I recently watched Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves, which will be an episode uh, coming out oh, before this one. Fun. And uh, yeah, I think it was ultimately a good choice to just not have Kevin Costner do an accent. Like on the one hand, it's like why is there this American there? But on the other hand, Kevin Costner doing a British accent for two and a half hours would have been a lot. It's like how in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, they, they had Dick Van Dyke do like just his normal American accent, even though it's set in Edwardian England, because the last right. time he was in a movie set in Edwardian England, we got the Burt voice from Mary Poppins. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Which I think I once did something very close to uh, and when uh, a British friend of mine asked me to like try doing a British accent, and she then said I sounded like a crazy person, so... <laughs> Yep, it's it's not a good accent. Like they they hired they hired a voice coach for Dick Van Dyke, but the voice coach was Canadian and didn't know what he was doing. Mm. Clearly, <laughs> oof, yeah, not not successful. So the doctor escapes and he ends up following this purple robed gentleman through the catacombs, and he then rescues Sarah from being sacrificed. And what is a manner that I find hysterical? That first of all, she's just sort of like lying there and is not struggling as much as I feel like she ought to. But then also, I guess everybody is just very like relaxed because he then just like pulls her quietly off. And I'm like, can they not see through those weird masks? <laughs> like, how do they not notice this? Yeah. I think I had to I think I had to rewatch that scene because I wasn't sure what was happening the first time around. <laughs> he just like pulls her forward and like off the altar basically, right? Yep, more or less. Maybe there's like <laughs> And they just don't notice. Maybe they've got like some powerful incense going that's got everyone like in a, a haze a little loopy. Maybe. I mean it ex- it explain why they why they're not doing anything. It explain why she's not doing anything. Yeah, that's that's I think a good explanation. He's managed to get her away, but the Demnos worshippers are still pretty excited because the Mandragora energy enters the temple and like infuses the altar. Yep. Which they think is very much a good thing. Yeah. It's like it's like, mm. oh our our crazy rituals have unwakened power that's what we were trying yeah. to do way to go I mean, that makes sense that if you're like doing all these weird rituals and then like a weird ball of light infuses your special rock that you think that this is related to your rituals and that like that is your god and the in, on the altar yeah i can i can definitely see the, the chain of logic there yeah the doctor describes these uh, the worshippers of Demnos as being a particularly nasty Roman sect that was supposed to have died out in the third century. To which Sarah responds, "I thought this was the fifteenth. And I, I, I looked up. I, I did a just some cursory research. Demnos is not a real thing. It's fictional. No, Demnos is nothing. So, <laughs> yeah." I mean, yeah, Demnos is nothing in either the third century or the fifteenth. For the plot of the episode, it's fine. <laughs> This is fine. Yeah. Although, fun fact, there's some video game that I don't remember the name of where you have to find something called the Staff of Demnos, which I assume they just got, they just pulled from this. 
Probably. I would not be surprised one bit. I've seen, uh, oh, but that's not, I'm not even sure if that was a real reference or not. There's a video game. It's like a private eye superhero thing. But the, uh-huh. but the villain is the mummy of the, of the Egyptian pharaoh Sutek. And I'm not sure if Sutek okay. is real, but, but Sutek is the villain of a Doctor Who episode. <laughs> so yeah, so it might just be some, uh, some you know, additional adaptations. There's a lot of, there's other points later in this, uh, this serial where I think there might have been some influence from Doctor Who on other pieces of media. Yes, quite possibly. Which we'll get to. The altars glowing, the worshippers of Demnos are very stoked. The Mandragora energy tells the High Priest that, like, this is his special spot that no other mortal can stand in, and that he gets to carry out the will of Mandragora on Earth. And so that's that's very exciting. Yes. We also learn that the High Priest of Demnos is really the astrologer Hieronymus. A, a plot twist yes. no one saw coming, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. The Doctor and Sarah get, capt- get captured, and they are taken now to... <laughs> Like, they, I guess, like, you know, we have, like, good cop, bad cop in this Italian duchy. So now they get taken to the good cop, to Giuliano. Yep. And his, quote, companion, Marco. Yes. Like, they're sleeping together, right? Oh, like... absolutely. Uh, there is there is no question that that is what is happening. Like, that's clearly a romantic is, and sexual relationship. This is as, this is as like, blatantly gay as, as the BBC in 1976 could possibly get. Right. Or for that matter, as you could probably get in the 15th century. Well, man, that's actually maybe not true. You'd actually probably be slightly more blatantly gay than this in the 15th century. I would say, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so he has his companion, Marco, and the two of them meet the doctor and explain this conflict between him and his uncle, which includes that he is concerned that his uncle would suppress knowledge and learning because he's a bad medieval and Giuliano is a good Renaissance man. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, that said, Federico is a dick, and and I would ra- much rather have oh, yeah, Giuliano be in charge. Oh, yeah, no, of course, because Federico's an asshole. The doctor examines the body of this dead guy, who is blue, and another Arrested Development reference, I guess he just blew himself, <laughs> <laughs> and finds that he has Helix Energy remnants, Yeah, which he again attempts to explain to Giuliano with relatively little success. Yeah. Like, Giuliano's like, the, the guards are saying that it was a fire demon, which I don't believe, because I don't believe in demons. And, and, like, the doctor's explanation, like, a fire demon is, like, the closest that is, like, closer to the actual truth than anything the doctor manages to convey. Right. I mean... It's a malevolent... Ling- it's a malevolent intelligence... It's a malevolent alien. Yeah, it's a... Ma- essentially. It's a malevolent intelligent force that uses fire to kill people. That's as fire demons as close as you fire need. Fire demon is at close enough. Point. Yeah, yeah. Like it really gets the point across. Yeah. Fire demon from outer space. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Federico is very grumpy while they're awaiting. It seems that there's a whole group of just random Italian rulers who are planning to just show up to celebrate Giuliano's accession to the dukedom. Yeah. Federico is very grumpy about this and is also increasingly in conflict with Hieronymus, who is very full of himself now that he's gotten Mandragora energy into him. I thought, I thought like, nobility traveling to visit other rulers for their coronations was a thing that happened. 
It is. I just find it odd. I guess, okay, I guess I find it odd because we don't actually know who this person is, right? Or how important or large this dukedom is. That's fair. It's it's. Yeah, and so with that in my head, because I haven't heard of it, I wanted to think of it as relatively small and not that important because if it was important, I would have heard of it. Right. And then that makes me think like, wait, why does like the I mean, Doge it's... of Venice give a shit? Yeah, it's like it's it's a generic Italian locale. Yes. I mean, I and I understand like not wanting to use actual characters in the in the middle of this. Right. So I I understand why they went the route it. they did. So, so but. the doctor is uh, again trying to sort of figure out what's going on. He describes the 15th century as a period between the dark ages of superstition and a dawn of a the dawn of a new reason. Yeah. And I groaned. Mm. Yeah. It, it wasn't it wasn't good I, I was having a rough time i yeah i groaned too i was like doctor you're better than this i would seriously I'd, i would ex- i would expect this kind of like blatant misinformation from like steven <laughs> or mm-hmm. or even sarah jane but not you yeah yeah like haven't you haven't you read anything like don't you know like you You've, you've been, been in these there. Periods. You've you've visited yeah. these these places before. These time periods. Like you should know better. Yeah. But he repeatedly continues to perpetuate myths about the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, yep. particularly this myth, which I have many thoughts about that I will discuss in more detail later. He says that since the helix energy has penetrated all of the stones in the temple and all that, they should just destroy it to keep that from hurting other people. And goes into the temple to kind of try and, you know, figure out what's going on. Meanwhile, Giuliano is talking to Sarah and he's like, I have a theory that the world is really a sphere. It can't possibly be flat. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, Oh, it's, mm, it's bad. It's like, mm. it's like Juliana. Pro- mm. They're telling us you're smart, but but but. Mm. I will provide more details on this later. But for anyone who is not ha- does not happen to be aware of this, the fact that people in the Middle Ages believed the Earth was flat is a myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I'm very annoyed. I'm extremely annoyed. So the uncle's guards come, and maybe they'll kill him so he can stop saying dumb shit. But. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Jane goes after the doctor and ends up finding some creepy priests. Hooray, more creepy priests. Yep. Yep. We begin the next episode. Sadly, the guards do not kill Giuliano, so he can continue to say dumb shit. <laughs> yeah, the doctor must have passed Sarah Jane in the catacombs somewhere because he comes running out with a sword of his own right. to, to like help Giuliano fight off all these guards. The catacombs are very winding, I guess, and I guess there's a lot of different... like. Yeah tunnels and points to go in and out i can certainly see that yeah it's it's yeah they, they i mean they, they make reference to like it's a maze down there no one no one knows where anything is and and if, mm-hmm. if we try and like if we if we try and search for someone down there like we'll never find them right the doctor also has a little encounter first with the mandragora helix which i guess can like get into your head i guess i think it's like something telepathy something i don't I mean, I don't yeah. know how else, I suppose I don't know how else it would talk because it doesn't have a mouth. Right. So it has this weird, like, or it, like, eventually, you know, it, like, possesses people. But I guess now it just has, like, mean telepathy. Mm-hmm. It also gives him these cool hallucinations of a Roman villa in the temple. So that's yeah. fun. 
That was actually a pretty cool visual effect for 1976. Yeah, yeah right? Like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Good job. The doctor does, however, eventually make it out and uh, is fighting against the assorted guards. There's a there's a great line where like the guards the guards are ganging up on Juliana, which good on them for not doing that thing of like of like going in one at a time to get defeated individually. Right. But they're ganging up on Juliano and and Juliano's like holding his own pretty well and and Federico's like he He's only one man. And then the doctor comes running in with a sword of his own. And he's like, you can't count, count. Which is good. <laughs> it's a good line. It would not be... And it would still almost work in Italian. It wouldn't be quite as good in Italian. But it would almost work in Italian. Yeah. Like, it would be like, quantare quante, I think. Close enough. Yeah, not too bad. But it's very good in English. Multilingual puns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The Demnos priests end up coming and helping out Giuliano, and that allows him to escape. And he ends up going into the catacombs, and is surprised that the doctor knows what he's doing with the sword, which the doctor responds to this by saying, like, oh, yeah, I learned some tricks from Cleopatra's bodyguard. And it's every now and then these moments where I'm like, you're not even going to, like, try to pretend that you're sort of a normal person, are you? <laughs> nope. <laughs> he, he, he has a hobby of name-dropping. <laughs> There is an interesting thing I'll note later with regards to his name dropping, uh, but I will I will note it when we get to it because because there is a historical figure that we never get to see, but who is mentioned. Yes. 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 So an omnipresent yet absent individual. Yep. Meanwhile, Sarah has been taken captive by Hieronymus, who plans to then use her against the Doctor. And Federico is now grumpy since the Duke of Milan has arrived and the Doge is going to be there within the hour. And he's like, oh, tell them I'm sick with an ague. With an ague? An ague. Ague. I can never pronounce that word. <laughs> it's fun to watch you yes. try. <laughs> yeah. Tell him I'm sick with an ague. And I do like the idea that, like, playing sick is uh, a, like, universe to avoid <laughs> obligations is a universal. Yes. In that in that moment alone, I'm, I'm like, all right, Federico, I feel this. <laughs> I, right, yeah. I, I understand you. <laughs> for... It's like, yeah, I get it. I get it, buddy. Hieronymus is supposed to be killing Giuliano for Federico, but increasingly seems to be into his own plans, which includes that he's recognizing that the doctor is a threat. Mm-hmm. So he hypnotizes Sarah, who he has with him, with, okay, this item is this, like, weird little, like, Swarovski, like, faux Swarovski crystal bauble that looks like the kind of shit that you would buy at, like, a gift kiosk in Rome. It looks pretty, but I don't <laughs> know how well it would work as a... And he's not even doing the, like, swaying back and forth. It's just like, you know, like, you twist up the chain and you let it... And then you let it go, and then you just, and then he's just holding that in front of her face. Right, and it also is, it lo- like it looks like it costs six dollars. Like if somebody told me that that was like a prize for winning a bunch of tickets at Chuck E. Cheese, I wouldn't be shocked. Like it looks awful. Yeah. <laughs> like it's pre- it's sparkly, but like it looks extremely cheap. Yep. He hypnotizes her, and uh, to can to basically tell her that now you're on our side, and uh, you're gonna kill the doctor when you next return to him with this poisoned needle that I'm giving you. Yep. Federico is increasingly anxious about the fact that they still don't know where Giuliano is, 
and comes up with the plot that he is going to uh, prove that Giuliano is a secret devotee of the cult of Demnos as a way to undermine him and get him kicked off so that he can rule entirely on his own. He also, he uses a lot of very colorful similes and metaphors. Like in this scene, he describes Giuliano as harder to find than a flea in a beggar's robes. And then says he must come out or die like a sewer rat, which I'm pretty sure is like the second time he's compared someone to a sewer rat. Yeah. He should write poetry. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe he should, maybe if he just chilled and wrote some poems, he'd be much happier. Yeah. Instead of murdering people. Yeah. I'm I'm sure his uh, his nephew would support him if he wanted to hang out at court and Oh yeah, for sure. Poetry. Yeah. Yeah, he should have just done that. The doctor is increasingly worried that the Mandragora intelligence chose this particular place to go very deliberately. They then find Sarah, who seems I think very normal. She does ask the question of how she suddenly understands all these languages. Okay, actually, does that seem weird? Did that seem weird to you? So I think it's I think it's a reasonable question. I think the weirdness comes in the fact that she has been traveling with the doctor for over three seasons and and like only now is thinking to ask this. Right. I think that's what I think that's what tips the doctor off. It's like mm-hmm. it's like it's a reasonable question, but you didn't ask it sooner? That's a little weird. Right. Whereas I'm watching this, and because I haven't seen that much else, I'm just like, yeah, that is a good question. And also I'm like, yeah, yeah, maybe it's to, like, remind the audience of how this works, but then he doesn't actually tell her how it works, really, so. That's true. Yeah. His literal words in that moment are, I'll explain later, but. Right. Which, but, which yeah. they are, they are, they are running around the catacombs trying to flee from these cultists. So, like, that's a fair... Yeah. That's a fair thing to say, I think, at that point. True. But yes, but I, I, when she asked the question, I was like, yeah, good point. Because that's always the question I, I want to know in, like, time travel stuff, is how do they speak the same language? Yeah. I mean, he later clarifies that it is, like, a function of the TARDIS, so. Right. But yes, but I was like, I want to know. Please tell me more. Marco gets taken captive by Federico et al., and Federico and Hieronymus have a little confrontation where Federico says that Hieronymus is really a fraud and Hieronymus, who at this point is, I guess, like less of a fraud because he's got his whole Mandragora situation, tells him that he is in grave danger. To which Federico says, you can no more tell the stars than you can tell my chamber pot, which, again, very colorful language. Yeah, I, Federico, more than anyone else, I think has reason to be skeptical of Hieronymus because like... All of Hieronymus's death predictions to this point have been done at Federico's behest. So right, he knows that the predictions are bullshit because he's the one who told them to told him to make them and then exactly. <laughs> so yeah, so he obviously has every reason to think that he is in fact a fraud, and he presumably was, but now he has these like real powers increasingly by virtue of the Mandragora heal- Mandragora Helix energy situation. embodying him then he actually tells the guard that he should go and find Hieronymus and kick him out of the city to which it is one of those things where it's like why not just kill him yeah I mean he's you murdered like 10 fucking people why let this guy go right you're like in the middle of torturing a dude this guy who knows what your deal is yes just kill don't don't banish him murder him yeah Anyway, but whatever. So, you know, he doesn't successfully do any of those things. So. True. 
I guess it doesn't matter. He manages to capture everyone but Hieronymus. Right, because Hieronymus has a magical fire demon yep. from space. Uh-huh. So they're, they're torturing Marco, and uh, basically with the idea that he'll then, as uh, Giuliano's buddy, confess that really he's a follower of Demnos. And props to the makeup people, because Marco looks really bad in this scene. Like He does. He looks ill. Which is funny, because then when he is... When things, like, eventually will, you know, go back to normal, spoiler alert, or at least, you know, they're all, they've, like, solved that particular problem, at least, he looks 100% totally fine and normal. Yep. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, you, uh, you really, you really, like, snapped back pretty fast got from a, that being tortured. Got a, got a long rest in there, and... <laughs> yeah, but, back yeah, to but full hit points. good in this scene. No, he yeah. does not. The doctor confronts Hieronymus, who asks... Were you sent from the stars to your response? You, you could say that, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's not It's not wrong. It really isn't. Yeah. No, again, it's like, yeah, no, close enough, actually. That's fair. Yeah. Sarah goes into her hypnosis murder mode. This hypnosis apparently <laughs> fucking sucks, which honestly, should we be surprised? Because, like, the doctor is basically just like, Sarah, we're friends. And then she's like, oh, yeah, wow, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like, Sarah, you're my best friend. Stop. She, like, goes to stab him with the needle, but he, like, catches her wrist, and he's got a pretty strong grip. Yeah, so he stops her, but yeah, but then he also, like, it's that he snaps her out of the hypnosis so quickly that I'm like, this, I mean, this is not good hypnosis. I, I mean, with the with the $6 little crystal thing, like, what did you well, expect? Yeah. You get what you pay for. You do. <laughs> and this is where he explains that he actually knew all along because he was tipped off by the language question. Yeah. Federico's guards then capture Giuliano, the doctor, and Sarah. He does the whole thing where he explains to everybody exactly what his plot is, like villains always do. Yep. At which point uh, the guards then come in and say that, you know, something's weird happening over at the temple. And the doctor convinces him that the two of them should go together to see what's happening in the temple. So what's happening is that Hieronymus does not have a face anymore. Yeah. So they go into the temple and like, and like Hieronymus and his cultists are like absorbing energy from the altar. Yes. And there's some pretty cool visual effects going on there. Yeah. I actually thought it was pretty well done for the 70s. Yeah, and so, and the doctor and, and Federico and a couple guards come in. Federico's like, Hieronymus, stop this nonsense. And he walks up to Hieronymus and rips the mask off his face, and he has no face. It's just a, no, it's just, just a this, like, glowing blank there. And at some point, they, like, you know, somebody's like, give it like a punning, and he's like, he gave him a blank look. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a good pun for the audience, but the person you're speaking to has no idea what you mean by that. Yeah. But it is like, it's pretty good effects. It's pretty creepy. That's the part three cliffhanger. Right. Yes. And I can't remember exactly where this is, if it's right at the end of three or the beginning of four or uh, it's, what. It's at the end of three and then like repeats at the beginning of four because like, right. as, as, the, as the tiny little recap for, for those of you who had to wait a week between episodes and the original airing. Right, that it always basically replays the last like minute of the previous episode, mm-hmm. essentially. In addition to having his face not be a face anymore, Hieronymus has forced lightning now. Yep. <laughs> Like, 100% straight-on Palpatine Force Lightning. Yes. So, I guess George Lucas watched Doctor Who because it is exactly the same. Yep, and this and this predates Return of the Jedi by seven years. Yep, yep, 76 to 83, so... Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wonder where you got that. 
it really is like it's exactly the same visual. Yes. We then do see the priests of Denmas, uh, Demnas circle around the altar, intoning something about how all their earthly enemies are going to perish. They also are like Demnas all the all along is just a servant of Mandragora. <laughs> So we've just ditched Demnos, I guess, which yeah. is good because I keep saying, I keep going back and forth between whether I say Demnos or Denmos. So, you know, <laughs> now you can just say Mandragora. So that he's really just a servant of Mandragora, who is the master of all things and will swallow the moon. Mm-hmm. At this point, Federico's been gone an hour and the guard's like, well, once he was gone an hour, I'm supposed to just kill everybody. <laughs> so he's like about to do that. Conveniently ignoring the fact that if Federico is dead, he has no authority to do anything. Yeah, which but, you know. which everyone points out to him. <laughs> right, everybody's like, dude, if like if Federico's fine, like he was gonna be like if Federico's not dead, he's gonna be back in fifteen minutes, and he'll either he might not want us, you want you to actually kill us, or he's dead, in which case, like, what the fuck is your plan then? Yeah, Giuliano is the legitimate authority authority figure anyway. <laughs> Well, right, yeah, I mean, there's, like, that problem, but it's, like, you're not even working on behalf of a, like, viable claimant. I mean, I don't know, it's, you know, in in America, we just had a fucking, like, attempted coup yesterday, or two days ago, so, like, whatever, but... Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't be that worried about legitimacy, I don't know. Yeah. America. America. Italy. (laughs) Yes, Italy. The doctor returns and lets him know that Federico is, in fact, dead. Based on this, Giuliano does, in fact, basically talk everybody except for Federico's main dude into, like, you should probably just side with me now because, like, Federico's dead. So, like, what the fuck is your plan at this point? Yep. Marco's like, great, this is fantastic. Everybody's fixed. The doctor's like, no, we still have, like, an evil cult with a magic fire demon. Yeah. Maybe we should worry about that. Yep. They make a plan to barricade the fortress. And then, but then Marco and Giuliano are like, should we still have a party? We yeah, probably still have a party. We've still got these important people here. Like, <laughs> We should just have a party. The ball was already planned. And the question is whether they should call it off. Right. And I think Marco has this very like Machiavellian, uh, if you call it off, then you will seem weak. Therefore, you should still have it. Which, given what ends up happening at the ball, I feel like actually he probably should have called it off. But whatever, well. I guess. And the doctor was in favor of it because it gives him the perfect distraction, frankly, for his own plan. Exactly. The doctor, meanwhile, he's messing around with an astrolab. Hooray for astrolab representation. Yes. He figures out that swallow the moon refers to a lunar eclipse and that that's going to allow them to do something. Yeah. And realizes that if they don't stop Mandragora, this could be the only science. Hmm. The doctor is thrilled about the idea of the party as being the perfect distraction and asks for wire, which he's like, wire? They've had wire for at least 150 years. We're good. And an armored breastplate. He also tries on an extremely intense and large lion mask, which I would love to have in my house. It's a good mask. And explains that his plan is that he's going to drain off the helix energy into his body, like using this stuff as a conductor. I don't know. I think so. I think his I think his theory is that like the basic energy is essentially electricity, so he's just gonna like try and ground it out. Right. If he disperses the energy, then then Hieronymus won't have anything to draw on. Right. So I I I don't know if the science works here, but we'll just say It, it does, whatever. I mean, he's definitely shooting lightning out of his fingers, so there's something electrical going on. 
Yeah. And, you know, Palpatine's Force Lightning has its limits. Yeah. As we learn in the truly terrible movie, which I watched recently, uh, Return of the Sith. Yes. Revenge of the Sith? Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith. Yes. I'm, I'm doing great today. Carmen made a, Carmen made a good life decision not watching that. Yeah, Carmen just joined for the end when we got to like watch Anakin <laughs> suffer in the fire. Yes. <laughs> oh god, that movie is very bad. We started the party. The party is so fucking awkward. We have all of the Den- the uh, the Demnos Mandragora guys are just like circled around creepily outside. There is a jester kind of cavorting, and everybody is just utterly fucking silent. And at some point they like start dancing and then everybody's kind of like awkward and whispering. And it's clear that everybody like knows there's something real weird going on. And it's also clear that they did not pay any of these extras to do any lines. (laughs) That too. (laughs) One of them has to dance with Sarah, but I don't think he even speaks. Nope. He just just sort of bows. Yeah. The Jester's performance though, like he's doing some pretty impressive like fire Mm -hmm. eating and fire juggling and and flips and this guy's talented a the actor is clearly very talented b in universe props to this gesture for carrying on a flawless performance while in the middle of what is clearly the most uncomfortable party ever held yeah honestly good for him good for him the doctor goes down to an alt to the altar and is playing with a yo-yo mm-hmm. Veronimus comes in furious that he has profaned the sacred stone at which point, uh, so Hieronymus is, I guess, just really Mandragora at this point. We're possessed by Mandragora. Pretty much, yeah. And he explains that uh, they, I, I don't know, Ma- I don't know Mandragora's gender, had to take over the Earth since if they don't do that now, then humans' curiosity is going to lead them, I guess, to intergalactic travel, which, I mean, honestly, you got some time on that, though. Yeah, yeah. They- <laughs> I also I also find this this repeated like viewing like oh humans will get interstellar travel and they'll be like a major power and it's like okay but this is also like a cosmos that already has time lords and daleks so are humans really the ones right. to worry about Yeah and uh oh, what are they called the uh the potato people Santarans Yes, thank yeah. you. Like, there's a lot of beings who have the capability for intergalactic travel. True. But, like, I don't think the humans or the Santarans are on quite the level of the Time Lords. No, but I just mean that, like, why worry about the humans when clearly they're not the only ones and not even necessarily the most advanced ones. Like, they're not even the ones who are closest to being a threat at that point. Exactly. But he, for some reason, is particularly worried about the humans and wants to go back to the 15th century to ruin science so that they don't develop intergalactic spaceships. Alright. Yep. The Doctor explains that, as a Time Lord, he, you know, personally and professionally is not here for that. And is then repeatedly force lightninged. Which, again, is exactly what it is. I think his plan is like, I mean, it hurts him, but it doesn't kill him because it's hitting the breastplate. It's hitting the breastplate, and then it's going down the wire into the ground and dispersing, so. Yes. Which. So it's, I guess. As far as, as far as, like, a real science thing goes, that's, like, more real science than most of the Doctor's plans. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. And I'm also assuming that, like, even with that, if he'd actually been a human, that might have been a more dangerous endeavor, maybe. That's than true. Is. 
for a Time Lord. Yeah, he's got a pretty high constitution score. Right. He can power through a lot. Yeah, so that was my assumption is another person couldn't have probably pulled that off. Worst case scenario, he's regenerating into Peter Davison several seasons early. Right, exactly. He'll be fine. <laughs> that too, right? It's like he can't really die. So like, you yeah. know, the, the stakes are basically like... I mean, Either I succeed or I don't succeed, but regardless, I'm not, like, actually dead. There are situations where he can die permanently, but this isn't one of them. Okay. At the party, Sarah thinks that the doctor has gotten there because she sees somebody with a lion mask. But it turns out that it is a trap, and that is one of the brethren who's got this fucking mask. And there's more of the brethren who reveal themselves. And one's got a real creepy, like, round mask, yeah. which is horrifying, but very well done. Very well done. Like, in general, like, the mask game, because there's also, like, the masks that the Demdots people are wearing earlier. Like, there's a good mask game. Yeah. And the masks of the people at the party in general. And Yeah, like, they're solid. They're they're good masks. Yeah. The brethren have arrived, and they force lightning, just straight up murder, like, I don't know, 15, 20 people? Like, most of the extras? Mm Mm-hmm. Not all of Which, them, but but a lot of them. Not all of them. Yeah, like we and I would say probably like half the people who are in the room. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Which like as by the way, like this is like his plan that the party is like a distraction. I guess it's just that he thought that it was like acceptable to risk killing like I don't know ten ten plus people. Yeah. Well, I th- so. I, I I think he thought that maybe he would he'd manage to stop Hieronymus quicker. <laughs> Right. So he didn't, and a lot of people die. We then see the purple-robed Hieronymus saying that they have to bring the uh, the survivors down to be sacrificed in the temple, at which point the priests are instructed to touch the altar. And then I guess because that's what's happened with all the lightning, they all fall down dead. Hieronymus, I was doing quotes that nobody can see because it's not a visual medium. Yep. Hieronymus takes off his mask and his robe and reveals that in fact it was the doctor all along doing a very good Hieronymus slash Palpatine impersonation. Yep. Because apparently he managed to defeat Hieronymus with, with the whole energy siphoning thing and then somehow fried the rest of them? I'm not exactly sure how but it i guess like made the electricity go into the raw i i, I don't know yeah. i'm again I'm, I'm fussy on the science and i don't know if that's the show or that's me or both i yeah i'm not clear either really yeah but... they're all dead the doctor reveals that it's really him not hieronymus and uh, continues to like demonstrate how good he is with the impression by asking for a salami sandwich I would not say no to a salami sandwich. Where can you get a salami sandwich? It's not a... from a Jedi. <laughs> it's such a good. It's it's a fun line delivery. I. It is. Yeah. It's very cute. Juliano and Marco and Sarah Jane are all like cheering, like, "Yay, we did mm-hmm. it!" There's lots of people dead, but we did it. Yeah. <laughs> At least we're not well, all no, dead. None of the people we've heard of. But it does raise the question, like, did they just kill, like, the fucking, like, Doge of Venice or something? Yeah. The Duke of Milan <laughs> is just dead now. <laughs> yeah. And so among the people, yeah, because they talk a lot about the group of people who had gathered and the fact that it includes all of these political luminaries and also that Da Vinci is going to be there because yes. he was coming along with his patron, the and Duke the, of Milan. And the doctor is like, hey, after, after we uh, get these cultists sorted out, I'd like to meet Leonardo. I'd like to meet Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah. In the grand scheme of the Doctor's name dropping game, this <clears throat> is this is one that I'd like to note because Da Vinci also comes up in a later fourth Doctor serial called City of Death, 
which is from 1979, Mm -hmm. which the main plot, like, is set in present-day Paris, and it surrounds, like, and the plot, like, surrounds, like, a theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre. And Mm -hmm. so at one point, the doctor goes back to da Vinci's workshop to visit his old friend, Leonardo, because apparently he's Mm -hmm. actually met Leonardo by that point. But when he goes there, Leonardo is not in. So the doctor's Uh like, oh, well, he's not here. I guess I'll just grab the thing I need and go. <laughs> so like we so like that's two for two on episodes that like mention visiting Leonardo, but we don't actually get to see Da Vinci. <laughs> right. And so for this he's, you know, oh it's too bad that I miss chatting with Da Vinci. But then it's like, well, I've looked at his submarine designs and they're pretty mediocre, so I guess it's fine that we never got a chance to chat. <laughs> yeah. And also, uh, as a as a parting gift, Giuliano gives gives the doctor a whole salami. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great gift. It is. I love a salami. I would not say no to a salami. Yeah. As they leave, uh, Giuliano's firm is very sad to see them go because he wanted the doctor to stay in science with him. But, Mm -hmm. you know, he reflects that the constellation is going to be in the right position to try again in another 500 years at the end of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe that explains something. I don't know. Well, they they do actually (laughs) revisit that. So... In the Time Warrior episode, I mentioned that after her time, like, on the show proper, like, Sarah Jane, like, is the, is the main character of multiple spinoffs through the years. Mm-hmm. So there is, an, there is a story arc in one of her spinoffs that, like, directly deals with the Mandragora attempting again in the late 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so she deals with that. Mm. I mean, I do have to say, though. If somebody told me that we should be blaming the anti-mask movement on <laughs> the successful arrival of the Mandragora Helix, I'd be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Maybe maybe he was just Except like, let's try America this time. Mandragora Helix, you know, seems to have a thing for masks, though. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's it's in the name of the, yeah, of that's the cereal. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And maybe we've got a lot of cool masks throughout, as we does discuss. Mm-hmm. That is how the episode ends. Oh, and actually it is with Sarah Jane when, uh, when uh, the doctor says something like, the 20th, that was a great century. And she's like, was? Yeah. What do you <laughs> mean was? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> she comes from like, what, the 70s, right? She, so? she comes from... It's a little fuzzy exactly what year she comes from. I believe it's supposed to be like 1980 or something. Yeah. So, like, the very near future of what was mm-hmm. then the present. Yeah. So. She is taken aback, which is fair. Yeah. I would be, too. <laughs> the doctor's probably just thinking of, like, oh, but I've visited, you know, the 21st and the 52nd and so. Right. Yeah. There's nothing in particular about, like, the 20th century, really. Yeah. He does get, spend a lot of time there, though. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Yeah. I wonder it's if it's because sh- it seems familiar. Sure, surely it has anybody. nothing to do with the BBC's budget. <laughs> no, it couldn't possibly be. There were a lot of historical claims or implications in this serial. So in the next segment, the Vera et Falso, we can discuss some of what they got right and some and what they got wrong with saving some of the biggest issues for the following segment, the Historia et Veritas. I'm going to start with some things that they did a pretty good job on. Oranges. We begin with Sarah enjoying some nice oranges. Mm -hmm. Sweet oranges were brought to the Mediterranean from China by Portuguese and Italian merchants in the late 15th, early 16th century, which in the grand scheme of things, I'll say close enough. Yeah. 
that this duchy's got some oranges. Like, that's fine. I'll allow it. It's maybe, like, a little early, but, you know, the, the, the exact yeah. year isn't nailed down or anything, so it's fine. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll allow that one. Mm-hmm. Rugs we see in the <laughs> as my cat eats my hair. Yeah. Hi, Carmen. Hi, Carmen. <laughs> okay, we're going to not do that. Rugs. We see some Turkish-style woven rugs that the doctor hides behind in the marketplace. Rugs of this style were described as being really great rugs by Marco Polo. And by the beginning of the 14th century at the latest, and very possibly earlier, they are being exported to and sold in European markets, and even become a popular feature in Italian paintings of the 14th century onward. For an example from actually an English context, which might be familiar to people, there is a very prominently depicted Turkish-style rug in the painting, in the Hans Holbein painting, The Ambassadors. There's, not, like, a big... Not one I can call the one with, like, the skull? That's the one with, like, the skull, but that it's, like, you have to be at the right angle to see it as a skull. I'm looking this up. It's an interesting painting, but anyway, it very prominently has one of these rugs, and there are a lot of paintings that have very prominent Turkish rugs. Oh, this one. Yes. I'm not sure what that's supposed to be if it's when it's not a skull. It doesn't... It either looks like nothing or it looks like a skull. Yeah. It's... Yeah, it's not like it looks like something else. No, but it's just... But it's that it only it's... is, like, visibly a skull that, like, makes sense from a certain angle. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just a, a thing. But whether you can see the skull or not, you can see the very nice Turkish rug. Yes. So, you know, it works that he's uh, that this marketplace has these rugs. I think they probably would have been somewhat better guarded than they seem to be since they were very expensive and they might have somebody might have been like, who is this dude? And why is he hiding behind my very expensive wares that I'm selling in this marketplace? But, you know, again, like I, you know, that would, be, that would involve hiring a whole different extra. Like, you yeah. know, that's too much. The, the marketplace in general, I'll just uh, say... I blame this on the lack of hiring extras, but it is deserted oh, in a yeah, way that it's... is bizarre for like what is I assume supposed to be a major city. Maybe Federico killed off all the customers. <laughs> right. Yeah, Federico is like, oh, is there also an urban revolt? I guess I'll just kill everybody in the marketplace. Yeah. The Roman villa hallucinations. I think they do a pretty solid job. They're clearly Roman. They sort of look like a Roman villa. Mm-hmm. I would wonder if they're sort of modeled off the Pompeii villa decorations. I could see it. Look kind of similar to that. But, yeah. you know, so not, not bad. The ague also that uh, a 15th century person would indeed use this term to refer to an illness marked by a fever. I can't say how often they would have faked an ague to get out of obligations, but, you know, it seems fair. I that would. That's a universal <laughs> thing. Yeah, I think that's fine. Yeah. It's, you know, equivalent now to somebody saying, like, oh, I don't know, like, I just, like, I don't feel well. Like, I really, like, I think I have a fever and I'm really sniffly, like. Hmm. I mean, if you did that now, they'd be like, you do have COVID, but, you know, yeah. then, that would be a whole different thing. But, right. Anyway. They also do a good job on the astrolabe, that the astrolabe is what you indeed would use to make various kinds of astronomical measurements during this period. We don't really see the astrolabe very well, I assume, because they don't have an astrolabe. And so what we probably basically see is like a piece of cardboard. But, yeah, you know. Doctor Who has never been known for its budget. At least not classic Doctor Who, for right. sure. It's a step up from from the time meddlers brawl in what is clearly a soundstage. <laughs> right, yeah. So, you know, and uh, and overall, you know, as, as we were mentioning before, like, the costumes are not bad. The costumes are recycled from the 1960s Romeo and Juliet movie. I mean, which At probably explains a, why a they're lot not of bad. Them. Yeah, good on them for reusing those. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, they're they're pretty good. Like they did a good job. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and the fact that they could then reuse these costumes means that the costumes do actually, in fact, look, I would say, pretty decently era appropriate, more or less. Yeah. So, success. Then there's some other things here and there. The doctor is correct that they would have had wire by this point, but they would have had wire well earlier than 150 years before this, since the use of wire in jewelry, at least, although I don't know about its conducting potential dates back to the second millennium BCE. In the line, if I remember correctly, he was referring to a specific way of making it that they would have had for that long, but I'm right, not which I sure didn't exactly. quite catch. And if that's what it specifically is talking about, that I'm I missed what exactly the line was. I will say that like at this point wire still is generally manually produced. And that we don't have, like, the wire mills that are making larger quantities and that are potentially probably closer to how we would make wire today. We don't have those until the 16th century. Fair. So I'll, I'll give it, like, a so-so on the, on the wire yeah. situation. Then, of course, some things that are maybe not so great. First of all, as mentioned, Demnos. Demnos is nothing. Demnos is not a real god. We did not pick a real nope. Roman god for this. Nor, by the way, is there any evidence of there being, like, large-scale visible, like, worship of a Roman pagan god being around the 15th century? Yeah, that's a wrong area for that, if anything. Like... Yeah! For for Um, one. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's the 15th century. Like, even for, like, Scandinavia, that's, like, a bit late. Right. Like, I think maybe the Lithuanians are still holding out at that point. But only them. And... It's not even, I would say, I'm pretty sure by this point it would be, like, Lithuania, I think at this point, is, like, essentially maybe, like, officially sort of Christianized, but I'm sure there are pockets. Yeah. But, yeah, but so, like, the 15th century is very late, and in particular, Italy is, for, you know, obvious reasons having to do with the Roman Empire, pretty thoroughly Christianized pretty early. It's a weird presence that we have here, and uh, they would have been really, I think, much more worried about heresy that about yes the worship of Demos. yeah this is pre-luther but not by much right exactly so, uh, 1517 is the 95 theses yeah right yeah so we're you know in the 25 to 30 ish years before luther kind of mm-hmm. range uh, depending on exactly what date it is which we don't technically know there are a lot of uh, heretical movements of various kinds running around uh, that include things that one might describe as being kind of proto-protestant as well as ones that are very into uh, intense voluntary poverty which the church isn't fond of yeah so there certainly are you know things that say the inquisition would be worried about and heretical movements that would be of a cons- of concern from a you know organized church perspective but, but, but the worshipers of demdos are not one of them yeah catholic heresies they had they had some vi- wide variance in beliefs but i don't think any of them did human sacrifice no certainly not on a wide scale level <laughs> no No, there is no precedent for that. The Vikings actually did have human sacrifice. Uh, At some point, they were sort of going back and forth as to whether that was real or whether that was just, like, some shit that Christians said. But they, I believe, have found some uh, archaeological evidence that is compatible with them having human sacrifice. It's interestingly not the first time that Doctor Who has dealt with human sacrifice. Interesting. The first time was in the 1964 serial The Aztecs. Mm, which and they certainly that definitely was a thing sacrifice and actually 
actually, it's interesting because Demnaz is supposed to be a Roman god, and the Romans are really not big into human sacrifice. I didn't think so, no. No. If I'm remembering correctly, and you know, this is just off the top of my head, I haven't researched this and I'm not a classicist, but off the top of my head in the Greek context, there are occasional, at least, stories about human sacrifice that are usually presented either ambiguously or negatively. Yeah. They're very rarely just straight up like human sacrifice is fucking awesome. There are certain cults of Dionysus that I believe were into it. Right. But otherwise, otherwise it's not a major thing. Right. And even those cults, I feel like, you know, that in like Greek drama, there's some indication of like weird feelings about this. I, I remember us, like someone introducing this to the topic of Dionysus with the, with the line, uh, Dionysus, god of wine, parties, and having a bunch of uh, of really hardcore followers that murdered Orpheus that one time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's also that play, the uh, the Bacchae, yes. which is uh, yeah, the play where there's like the dude who like the or like all of the I guess it's like all of the women who like go into a Dionysic frenzy. And end up, like, some woman, like, murders her son. Which, I don't know, he probably deserves it. It's been a while since I read the play. Yeah. But usually when men get murdered in ancient Greek plays, they deserve it. Yeah, from what I remember, the Bacchae, it's like, uh, the, the premise is, like, Dionysus, like, comes to a, like, he's, like, a new god. Like, this is shortly yeah. after he, like, you know, is born and starts doing god stuff. And he comes to this, and he go, comes to this town and he's like, yo, I'm a god, worship me. And, and, and the uh, king's like, and fuck and off, basically. The, right? Yeah, the king's like, the king's like fuck off and and uh and so dionysus is like well fuck you and and, like i because i really am and so he drives like half the population insane and they turn into his like his forest marauding party cult that murders a bunch of people so yeah good times yeah i'm pretty sure the romans are like not big into human sacrifice like no no so it's a slightly weird choice yeah. Mandragora is not a real thing either. No. <laughs> but, fun fact, the word Mandragora is the Latin name for mandrake, a plant that has a that has hallucinogenic effects, which, I don't know, he seems like he can sort of do weird things with people, so that's interesting. All right, that's a, that's yeah. a connection I wouldn't have made, but right. it, it works. And yeah. and yeah, the mandrake was also very popular in folk medicine as an anesthetic, which probably was actually a pretty decent one. And an aphrodisiac, which it maybe wasn't such a decent one. Yeah, I've heard but of it. I don't know. Depends I've heard on what of you're its into, uses, I guess. I've heard of its use as an aphrodisiac, but... Yeah. And in the Bible, it's actually described as something that might be used for fertility treatments. All right. Sure. Yeah. There's this, like, whole bit where they're, like, trading mandrakes for sex. All right. Sure. <laughs> It's like Leah and Rachel, like, and oh, that Leah's one. got yes, some mandrakes. Okay. I remember yeah, this now. And she trades the mandrakes to Rachel so that she can use them for a fertility treatment in exchange for, like, being able to, like, have sex with Jacob an extra night because he doesn't want to have sex with her because he doesn't like her. Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember this story now. Because Rachel had fertility issues right. for a while. Yeah, and I think it is as a result of the mandrake trade situation that she does eventually uh, conceive and give birth to Joseph. Okay, yeah, I remember that story. Yeah. When I was 12, I tried, I was like, I'm going to read, I'm going to actually read the Bible from, from cover to cover. And I made it as far as 2 Samuel, and I'm like, I, I'm done. Yeah, that's fair. You Honestly, know. like, uh, good on you for getting past Leviticus. Like, right? Yeah, I never actually sat down and read the Bible cover to cover, but I uh, would say that I have at some point read all of the Bible 
over the course of years. Makes sense. And, you know, medievalist, it's, it's useful. Same. You need it for things. Then finally, the other thing that I will note that they are a bit off on is he complains that in another 50 years, they would have had Galileo's telescope. And since it is at early, like it's like the 1490s, he would need to go a bit further forward than that since the telescope was developed in 1609, over a century after this episode takes place. Yeah. Whoops. And that, in terms of our scientific speculation, can then lead into the Historia at Veritas, where we talk about a real historical event, person, or phenomenon, where I'm going to talk about science and, quote, the Renaissance. I, I, I am only now realizing that this is the first piece of, piece of media you've covered that, that goes into the Renaissance. This is going to be fun. <laughs> I've done a couple of things that take place in what they would call and like in what might technically be considered like Renaissance early modern. But, but not but in none that have not in yeah. Italy at, at, no. at the at the epicenter of the whole. No. Everything. Yeah. The closest I've done probably is Dangerous Beauty, which is Veronica Franco. Okay. But I haven't done anything that's very invested in reproducing certain mythologies about the Renaissance, which this serial very much is. Mm -hmm. The word Renaissance literally means rebirth. Traditionally, the Renaissance is seen as being the rebirth of classical learning. I always struggle when I explain this to my students. The reason I struggle is because I can't curse in class, and the most clear and succinct way to explain how I feel about this and what the actual reality is, is to say that it's bullshit. Yep. But I'm not supposed to say that in front of the undergrads. (laughs) Anyway, it's bullshit. Yep. And the reason we believe it is basically because the Renaissance is, uh, as much as in some ways more than anything else, a really good marketing campaign. What it, what it does well is propaganda for itself. Exactly. That they came up with the term to describe themselves. They're also the people who came up with the term medieval, medieval or, or middle ages. Medieval really means the same thing. It's medium Iowa, middle age. And they came up with this term to be like, well, where the awesome period now? And then there was the classical era. And then there was a bunch of shit that happened in the middle that we don't give a shit about. <laughs> oh, boy. Good grief. And that's why the period is called the Middle Ages or the Medieval Period is because of this Renaissance marketing campaign, essentially. That's like, look how awesome we are. Almost as bad as the Victorians. Right. Yeah. Which is yeah, another... Yeah. Sometimes I don't know who I hate more. That's another rant to have later. <laughs> Oh, yes. The Victorians, between the Victorians and the Renaissance, they ruined everything. Yep. So the reality is that the Renaissance did involve perhaps a more active emphasis on classical models in literature and in art. So, for example, in art, it's not that medieval people were too dumb to figure out perspective. It's that they didn't value that particular kind of realism as an artistic trope, essentially. Whereas that's very much something that's valued in Renaissance art where you can barely, like, you know, trip over a Renaissance painting that doesn't have this, like, aggressive, like, look at me. I know how to do perspective. Look at this building over here. Yeah. <laughs> look at how he's standing in the middle of an arch. Yeah. They, yeah. I'm like, actually, like, I really hate it. I, 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 like, I like a lot of Renaissance art. The Renaissance, but... <laughs> Renaissance art is good. I, it's, yeah. The art is good. The aspersions it casts on the on its relative past 
sucks. Yes, and, and also there is a lot of very bad Renaissance art. Very good Renaissance art True. is very good. Very well, the, bad well, the, Renaissance art is hysterically bad. The, the good Renaissance art is the stuff you hear about because it's good. Well, yeah, exactly. But then when you like go to all of these like little museums in Italy, you see a lot of really <laughs> shitty Renaissance art. Fair. <laughs> and you that's... see a lot of very good Renaissance art, of course. And the hysterically bad stuff is not the sort of thing that, say your sister who's on vacation will take pictures of and bring home to show you. Right. It's the sort of thing I take pictures of and then I'm like, look at this like 85th ugly Renaissance baby. But, (laughs) you know. Yep. Essentially what, as I said, the Renaissance is in terms of its relationship to the classical world is essentially a kind of emphasis on certain kinds of classicizing models in literature and art. That doesn't necessarily have anything to do with science, first of all. And second of all, it is worth noting that in terms of the kind of overall corpus of classical literature, philosophy, and scientific texts, medieval people had a lot of access to a lot of that. First of all, the idea that no one in the Middle Ages had any of these texts is, above all, extremely Eurocentric, Mm -hmm. since... They had a lot of those texts in the Middle East, that the Abbasid Caliphs in particular are very invested in these translation projects in the 8th and 9th century, where they're translating a ton of texts from Greek into Arabic, and so they have access to a whole lot of these texts. Yeah. Baghdad was really probably the biggest center of learning in the world right up until... Absolutely. Right up until Genghis Khan's grandson burned it to the ground. Right. Which sucked. No, absolutely. So this is really this epicenter of learning and of uh, scientific and philosophical speculation, which of course are often very deeply related to one another. Mm -hmm. The other thing to keep in mind is that much of the rediscovery or new access to texts that many people previously had not had access to because sometimes they were sort of around but they were in Greek and people didn't know Greek. A lot of this comes from translation projects which are in fact well before the Renaissance in the 12th and 13th centuries of a lot of these texts uh, not from the Greek but in fact from the Arabic now into Latin which are in themselves really interesting in that they're these often multilingual and multi-religious translation projects where often you'll have a, say, Jewish or Muslim translator who will translate the Arabic into the local vernacular and then a Christian who will then translate that into Latin. Yeah. They they had a lot of those texts, you know, a lot of the things that they're like, the medieval people, they didn't know what happened in, what happened in our Rome. They were a Greece. They, they had those things. They had a whole lot of those mm-hmm. things. And also, they had science. Not all of it was accurate, but it is better and more accurate than people assume. And a lot of what they got wrong is shit that the Greeks and Romans also got wrong, which then persisted into the 17th century. For example, something like the four humors, which might be brought up as like medieval people are dumb at science. Uh, this idea that the body is composed of these uh, these kind of four elements yeah. that are in uh, different kinds of balance or lack of balance with one another. This is a, it goes back to the Greeks. Yes. It's Galen. And B, they fucking loved the four humors all the way up through, like, the 17th century. Oh, yeah. So, you know, maybe maybe stop pretending that you're so special. Yep. This show also perpetuates a common myth that everyone believed that the Earth was flat until Columbus was like, oh, it's round. Yeah, I know. Columbus was a dunce. Like, what? what? Yeah. Basically, the reason that the, the first people he went to, I forget if he... 
he went to Portugal first, I think. The reason that the, right. the the reason that the King of Portugal didn't want to sponsor him is because he's like, I can I can since the world is round, I can just sail across this way and get to Asia. And and the King of Portugal was like, dude, your calculations are super wrong, and like the world is a lot bigger than you think it is. And that is in fact exactly what that happened. That is in fact exactly what happened because he's like I. He's like, hey, I got I got to this thing in the distance I thought it would was, but it's not Asia, it turns out. Right. <laughs> not that he realized that, because again, he's an idiot. Well, he's a fucking idiot, yeah. So yes, Columbus is not this goddamn scientific genius. He's a idiot and also a genocidal piece of shit. Yep. He is also to the extent that he is saying anything that, like, you know, is recognizable to us as being accurate, it's all it's only things that would have been essentially standard for his own time. The idea of the spherical Earth goes back to at least Aristotle, so that's 4th century BCE, and would have been standard among medieval intellectuals. There's essentially no evidence, by, especially by the time you're in like the 12th century, there's no evidence that there are any university-educated medieval scholars who believe in a flat Earth. Yeah, there was like some, I think, Egyptian mathematician who actually was able to calculate the circumference of the Earth based on like... Yes based on length of shadows and some poles he right. stuck into the ground. Yeah, so like he managed to calculate the circumference of the Earth, and I think it actually might have gotten pretty close. Yeah, I think I think his... Uh, like, not bad? Yeah, I don't remember who it was. I don't remember his name, but, yeah. but I do remember... I don't either. But it was a long time ago. And it's also something that in addition to being what was, uh, you know, considered to be standard knowledge among, you know, university-educated intellectuals, it's also something that seems to have been basically accepted among the general public, too, that the Mm -hmm. Earth is round. So, for example, there's uh, this German Franciscan, Bertolt von Regensburg, who in the 13th century has this sermon where he just kind of refers basically offhand to a spherical Earth in a way that is basically assuming that anyone who's listening to him is not going to think twice about, like, is the Earth a sphere? The way that it's kind of presented is very much kind of implying that, like, this isn't new or weird information. Yeah. And similarly, if you read Dante's Divine Comedy, which is a literary text written in an Italian vernacular in the 14th century, this also is depicting the Earth as a sphere. My roommate has a copy of that, and I keep meaning to read it. Oh, you should. I really should. I'm excited I'll be teaching it next semester. Right now I'm in the middle of a a book about the Domesday book because the Domesday book itself is dense and also in Norman. So Yeah. That's one of the things that you like you pour over, you don't read. Exactly. So that's something that they do. And finally, the Renaissance isn't really marked by particularly dramatic scientific advancements, especially when you're talking about the classical kind of high Renaissance period of the 15th, 16th century. Da Vinci actually has some kind of fairly impressive discoveries, but he doesn't publish them. He just like writes some notes to himself and nobody knows about them. And they essentially have zero influence on the trajectory of later science. He writes his notes in code mirrored right nobody knows what the fuck he said no his his inventions are impressive but he but they never made it out of the design phase right and they wouldn't have made sense in a lot of ways with technology that he had at the time so True. it makes sense that they never got out of the design phase yeah. the man designed a tank and then specifically like encoded his notes because he's like no one should have this technology <laughs> so again it's like he he's very impressive and he's very influential in art but he's really not influential in science because yeah he wrote all of these things in code and hid them yep. and nobody read them <laughs> 
So it's not like people are reading that and based on that are like, oh, that's how things should work. I also want to note that the Renaissance is often perceived as well as this period in which people are suddenly, and by people, I mean, I'm specifically talking about Stephen Greenblatt's The Swerve, a book that I hate and that <laughs> I literally like have like a, le- I'm, I'm like, I'm teaching Lucretius's De Rerum Naturum next semester for a humanities class. And I'm literally going to like begin with a lecture about how I <laughs> so, so, so my students know what they're getting into for the rest of the semester. Yep. He very much presents the Renaissance as not only being this period where science, but also where we have sudden toleration extended to peoples whose scientific speculations seem to go against doctrine promoted by the church. I guess he's never fucking heard of fucking Galileo. Galileo. Yep. 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 I guess he's never fucking heard of Galileo, who was tried by the Inquisition for heresy for saying that the Earth result revolved around the sun and then died under house arrest. Yeah. Where he spent the last like four years of his life. And he was also before that, like he was forced to recant. Turn on Nova that that story is, is recounted in like every third episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, and Galileo died in 1642 which is well even after the kind of classical era of the Renaissance. So, you know, maybe get your shit in order. Also, the Renaissance is when all the witch burnings happened. So again, the Renaissance, not that great. Not that great, y'all. Nope. And of course, also, some of the most dramatic denials of science are very fundamentally just modern, looking at you, climate deniers, looking at you, anti-maskers. Yep. Yeah, it's not like we, like, you know, grew out of that whole pretending science is a real thing. Nope. (laughs) And in the Middle Ages, I will say, like, the science wasn't right, but people were actually, I think, in the Middle Ages, less invested in denying that science was real than a lot of people are right now in this year, 2021. Mm -hmm. During the Black Death, a lot of people thought there was a religious explanation, but they thought the religious explanations and the scientific ones could coexist. And they never said, like, no, don't quarantine. God will help us the way they're doing right goddamn now. Yeah. In conclusion, this is why I spent a lot of time groaning every time he talks about how this is the 15th century and we've left the Dark Ages and entered a new age of reason. <laughs> God. And also I would like to give a, to recommend a book if you're interested in learning more about this. There's a very new book by uh, scholar Seb Falk called The Light Ages. And it's coming out, it's, uh, it's come out from a trade press. Ooh. It's intended to be accessible to non-academics as well as academics. I just actually started reading it, but I've read a lot about it and I'm very excited about it. I will have to pester my local library into getting a copy. Yeah. I can I can be good at pestering. Yes, uh, yes. You should all pester your libraries. I I hate to advertise Amazon, but I actually I was able to get the Kindle copy for only like nine bucks. That's not a bad deal. So I highly recommend that for people who are interested in learning more about how yes they had science in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Before we go on, I want to do I want to do just a, a hint of foreshadowing. Earlier we've we've mentioned the plague a few times and uh and Uh how and and later outbreaks of it that is a topic that we will be looking into more on our next foray into doctor who so that's that's something to look forward to very exciting to be talking more about the plague in 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 our own time of plague in in a yes in a in an episode that has a specific year and specific location and is a real plague outbreak exciting so yeah history 
we don't have to play the what year is it game. No, we don't because the year is <laughs> the year is very explicitly implied. Well, there's a very specific event that nails down an exact date, but yes, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Yes. So I think we can now move into the Fabula Nostra segment, where we talk about a film, show, whatever, inspired in some way by this one. I was inspired by the fact that, well, as mentioned, I'm very frustrated by the, like, look at all the science in this episode, when maybe the science isn't that great or that different. But one of the things that is, of course, at least a kind of major development, uh, you know, I don't believe in this kind of, like, quality judgment, so I wouldn't say improvement, but certainly a development is uh, in the visual arts. And we, of course, have a lot of great artists from this period who create a lot of fantastic works. So inspired by that as really the, I would say, in many ways, great actual contribution of the Renaissance, and inspired by the last Doctor Who episode we covered, where we had an alien kidnapping a bunch of people from a, uh, a particular time period on Earth and taking them away. I really, really, really like a Doctor Who episode where you just have an alien who really loves Renaissance art and keeps kidnapping Renaissance artists to go and like decorate his space palace. That would be fun. I would, I would enjoy <laughs> that. Yeah, and so we have the Doctor is like hanging out in sometime in Renaissance Italy, and he has to figure out how to like get back like Da Vinci and you know Michelangelo and all of these people who got kidnapped and like should be painting the Sistine Chapel, but instead are like painting this dude's space palace. Sure. I I could get behind that. So that's what I want. I'd watch it. I think for me, I think I'd still draw on the themes of like the alien intelligence trying to meddle with human society. But I think I would go more mm-hmm. subtle and also go on a more of an arts route where they like try to introduce little hypnotic symbolism elements mm-hmm. in like renaissance paintings so that people who like look at them later will get like ideas subconsciously implanted in their brains and uh so sort of aliens meets da vinci code yeah kinda yeah (laughs) you know that would be bad and so the doctor has (laughs) to stop them that's that's what i would make that sounds good i would watch that yeah perhaps uh yeah perhaps you could do a renaissance episode of doctor who that isn't about look at the renaissance and their science you could do that that would be fun all these options Such great options. So we can now rate this on a regular scale from one to five. I really enjoyed the combination of sci-fi and, you know, kind of historical fiction elements. But man, the whole like Dark Ages science Mm -hmm. stuff. I I was having a rough time. I was was really struggling. So I think based on that, I'm going to go with a 2.5. But I would recommend this. So Mm -hmm. read a book to learn how this is wrong, but also watch it. It's fun. Yeah, going on that scale. All the Dark Ages comments really bother me, but like all in all, everything else about this, I genuinely enjoyed. So so I think think I'm going to go four out of five on this one. All right. And I think as as often happens, I think maybe like my my harshness and my <laughs> guess enthusiasm probably gets it to like what I think is maybe like a very like fair average. I don't know what that amounts to, like three point two five or something like that average rating. I think that works, yeah. Which that's... I think from a like I don't know combining like historical stuff and quality stuff, mm-hmm. I don't know that, that seems maybe kind of fair. I don't yeah, know. Sure. Well, do you have anything that you uh, would like to plug? So I've got I've got a project in the works. Um, I mentioned this last time, but it hasn't really 
gone anywhere yet, but it's inspired by this program, Media Evil. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do a podcast of my own that's sort of a reverse media evil, if you will, Mm -hmm. where instead of reviewing various works set in a specific time period, I go through Doctor Who and have experts on for the time periods that they visit. So if you are a historian or anthropologist or have some other form of expertise, I I have a Twitter, at Lizzie Strider, and you can feel free to message me on there and put this together because so far so far the main thing that's stymieing further progress is the fact that i don't know anyone (laughs) (laughs) i know you but that's it (laughs) so if you listen to this and have any other uh and have relevant expertise in some other area reach out yeah well if you've enjoyed this podcast you should subscribe in your preferred podcaster app and rate and review on apple podcasts and i will read new five-star reviews in future episodes please also follow the podcast on twitter at media evil pod and join our facebook group and you can find me on twitter at and on instagram at sarah if decker where i mostly these days bitch about politics if you have any questions or suggestions i would also love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com thanks for listening to media evil Bye. Bye.